humble us every now and then. What I want to do today, if you'll look at your handout as we continue down, and we've been talking about the identity of the introduction of the servant Savior into, into the world, and if you'll look at your handout, we've been talking about this idea of the identity of the servant Savior, and we've, we've gone through all of that. We're in the second part there, number two on your handout, and the authority of Jesus, the servant Savior, God in the flesh who came to redeem mankind. And as we've said many times in this series, that Mark's focus is the public ministry of Jesus the Christ. He was a man, but he was also God. But his focus is that Jesus, the God-man, came to be our Savior, but let's look at his life leading up to the cross and how we can learn servanthood. Because ultimately, in everything you do as a believer in Jesus Christ, our focus in living out our lives as Christians is I am your servant. They asked Jesus one time, why did you come, Master? And he had a very simple response. He said, I came to serve and to die. And if you reverse that, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian. I die to serve. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. I, no, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I am crucified with Christ. I die to self to live unto him. And in the process of living unto him, I live for others, total strangers. And the commonality that we share as believers in Jesus Christ in our fellowship, and that simply means to share in common, our fellowship as believers is we share the same Holy Spirit. We, sh we share the same Savior. We know the same grace. We understand love. And so we share that with each other so that when we go out of the world, we'll be effective communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the servant Savior, because he came to serve and to die. And his death is the most significant event in the history of the human race. But the focus for us, as we are here in, in Mark chapter 1, specifically today, if you look at, again, number two on your handout, we've been looking at the authority of the servant Savior. We know we studied his temptation, and we're in the second column, that second bullet point, looking at his preaching. We've talked about repentance and faith, and last week, or last time I was with you, we ended up under discipleship. And what we're, so we're transitioning today as we're looking at his preaching, and we'll see that he said, I came to preach the gospel, the good news of what God has to offer mankind, that I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the Messiah. I am the name of God. So that Jesus said, I came to preach the gospel, the good news, in every city. I don't want to stay in one place. I want to move. And, and if you remember, we talked about this several times. The word that's repeated the most in the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. That Jesus would go and he would minister someplace and immediately he would go somewhere else and finish there. And immediately he would move on somewhere else. Preaching the gospel, healing people, raising people from the dead, just doing incredible, miraculous things. But always his focus was the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, 
So last time we were together, we saw him calling disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, as fishermen, and saying, I want you to leave everything that you know, that you're comfortable with, your zone of life, your occupation, all that is your life. I want you to leave it and follow me. And the Bible says, Mark, immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their boats. And they followed Jesus Christ. And what began that day, I shared this with you briefly as we were closing a couple of weeks ago, what began that day was the greatest movement in the history of the world that the followers of Jesus Christ would change the world. We now call that the church. We're in the church age, also known in the Bible as the last days. We will be here until Jesus comes back. And he has allowed us, as crazy as this moment in time is, and it is crazy, he said to us, I'm going to give you a great privilege. My church, this is your time. This is your moment. This is your chance to step up and say to the world, here's the gospel, here's the good news. You want hope? You want change? Sound like a politician. You want something that will give you a meaning for life? It's the gospel. So what I, do, what I want to do prior to getting into the next part, you'll notice on your handout, it transitions from discipleship to how unique his preaching was. And don't ever forget that. When you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're sharing something that is unique. No one else can offer it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just another religious dogma. It's not just something, some other school of teaching. It is the good news that God has come in the flesh, Emmanuel, died in our place, paid our sin debt, rose from the dead, conquered sin and death, lived a perfect, sinless life. So he died one time for the sins of the world, and I can come to him by repentance and faith, be born again, be raised to new life in Christ, and be changed forever, be given peace, hope, and inheritance, all the great things that we understand as Christians. So when you share the gospel, you are sharing something that is unique. No other religion can offer that. Nobody else on the, on the planet can offer that. Only the church can. Only Jesus Christ can offer something that will change you forever and give you those things right now. So historically, as we transition into looking at his unique preaching, I want to share something that I found a couple of weeks ago. I was reading. just going to read you some historical facts about what the church has done since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. The Roman governor Plinius Secundus in the epistles X96, this was in the first century church, wrote that Christians were people who loved the truth at any cost. He was ordered to torture and execute them for refusing to curse Jesus. He was continually amazed and impressed with their firm commitments, quote, not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. Now that was, that was a quote from a Roman governor, a pagan, who was so impressed with the integrity of these people that he was having executed, people he was having imprisoned, people that he was having tortured, and yet they were such a people of integrity. They stood out simply because they wanted to be 
righteous. They knew they were in Christ, and they knew that if you take my life, you do me a favor because I go to be with Jesus. And so they lived it. The Bible says one of my favorite phrases, they turned the world upside down because they were different. They were real. A couple of other examples. Christianity has changed the value of society. For instance, I'm, I'm quoting from this article, many see Christianity as having repressed women, but in fact the opposite is true. Quote, women were oppressed in almost every culture prior to the coming of Christianity. By elevating sexual morality and by conferring upon women a much higher status, the Christian religion revolutionized the place and the prestige of women. For example, the great importance given to marriage meant that women were spared much of the abuse and mistreatment that they were accustomed to. Christians rejected polygamy, prostitution, homosexuality, and bestiality, all common during the time. The early Christians not only sheltered women, but protected children and family. The way Jesus treated women was in stark contrast to the surrounding culture. In Roman law, a man's wife and children were slaves, often treated like animals. Women had no property rights, and they faced severe social restrictions. Jesus changed all that. He treated the Samaritan woman the, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well was a remarkable example. And this was not lost on the early disciples. We know from the New Testament documents that many women exercised various roles in the early church. Indeed, during this period, Christian women actually outnumbered Christian men. Admittedly, there were some anomalies later in the church's history when chauvinistic and anti-feminine views were allowed to re-enter parts of the church. But such aberrations must not detract from the truly revolutionary elevation of the status of women achieved by Christianity. Just read the writings of the Apostle Paul on this subject. Just one simple statement. He said, let me describe the church for you. It's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ. Nobody viewed women like that. Nobody viewed them on the level with men. Jews, to Jews, they were property. You saw what they talked about. We just saw how the Romans viewed women. Jesus Christ came along and said they are equals. Matter of fact, if you study in Genesis chapter 1, God uh, gives Eve to Adam. We talk about uh, taking a rib, but the literal word is, is side, and it means there's a reason that uh, God uses the word uh, side, because not from the feet, not from the head. They went through life partners, side by side. When you get married, you walk down an aisle side by side. All of that was culturally was a picture, was pictured for us, the God, with Adam and Eve. So that's just one example. Consider health care. Prior to Christianity, the Greeks and the Romans had little or no interest in the poor, the sick and the dying. But the early Christians, following the example of Jesus, ministered to the needs of the whole person. During the first three centuries of the church, they could only care for the sick. They, they could only care for the sick where they found them as believers within a persecuted people. Once the persecution subsided, the institutionalism of health care began in earnest by the church. For example, the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325, this is 300 years after the life of Christ, directed bishops to establish hospices in every city that had a cathedral. The first hospital was built by St. Basil in Caesarea in 369. By the Middle Ages, hospitals covered all of Europe and even beyond that. In fact, Christian hospitals, quote, were the world's first voluntary charitable institutions. Care for the mentally ill was also a Christian initiative. Nursing also sprang from Christian concerns for the sick, and many Christians have given their lives to such tasks. One thinks of Florence Nightingale, for example, and the formation of the Red Cross. 
consider education. While important in Greek and Roman culture, it really took off institutionally under the influence of Christianity. The early Greeks and the Romans had no public libraries or educational institutions. It was Christianity that established these. As discipleship was important for the first believers and those who follow, early formal education arose from Christian schools. Also a Christian distinctive, individuals from all social and ethnic groups were included. There was no bias based on ethnicity or class. And the concept of public education first came from the Protestant reformers. Moreover, the rise of the modern university is largely the result of Christian educational endeavors. Bottom line is that Jesus Christ, if he had never been born, to speak of Western civilization would be incomprehensible. Indeed, there may not have been a civilization. The freedoms and benefits we enjoy in many modern cultures are directly due to the influence of one man, Jesus Christ. And then finally, beside, quote, besides all the institutional, cultural, social, political, and artistic benefits, there's one last benefit, the countless millions of changed lives due to a liberating encounter with the risen Christ. It is this benefit, first and foremost, which of course accounts for all the institutional ones that we've talked about. Jesus was unique. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 21. 1.21. He calls these disciples and he says, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. They were going to change the world because they believed in Jesus Christ. And they struggled with this. We've seen it and we've talked about it before. They did not want him to go away. They didn't understand. But once they bought into the resurrection and they believed, they changed the world under the power of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. So you get to verse 21. And I want you to look at his unique preaching. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I want you to see the scene. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is the beginning of Jesus' year number two on earth. This is known as, in theological circles, his year of popularity. It's when he's growing, everybody is hearing about him and wants to be around him and see him and, and find out what is it about this Jesus of Nazareth and he's just everywhere. They're talking about him. This is year two. Year one is his year of obscurity. This is his year of popularity. And then finally you'll see his year of persecution in year three. So Capernaum was basically at this time the base of Jesus' operations. The entire city was transformed by what he did. It was a large city, had several synagogues. Uh, Jerusalem had, for example, like 500 synagogues, and Capernaum had a lot itself. Jesus had to leave his hometown of Nazareth, and this is where he goes to minister, to begin to have like a base of operations. Let me tell you, explain synagogue a little bit, and then we'll move forward. So it says, verse 21, he goes into the synagogue to teach. What was going on in the synagogue? It was developed during the Babylonian captivity, that time from 685 to 50 B.C., uh, 605 B.C. to 585, when they go into captivity under Babylon, it lasts for 70 years. During that time, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, they don't have a land anymore, they are owned by the Babylonians. And during that time, they developed the synagogue system. They couldn't offer sacrifices because they didn't have a temple any longer. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So what they had were services led by men, laymen primarily, not by priests, called rabbis or teachers. They were presided over by, like, elders. 
And so they would have these worship services in the synagogues. Any, any area that had 10 male Jews could have a synagogue, their families. So in their worship services, they would have public readings from what you and I would call the Old Testament. Someone would stand up, one of these rabbis would stand up and read from their scriptures, public readings. Then they would have a sermon of explanation by some layperson, some rabbi who was there. In essence, somebody would get up and preach about what was just read. Someone would read scripture, someone would get up and explain it. For example, in Acts 13, you don't have to turn there, just I'll read you this quote. After the reading of the law and the prophets there in the synagogue, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So Paul stood up, the apostle Paul, and motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes on to explain what they had been reading. And that's, that's, you can read about that in Acts chapter 13. So primarily what was, began to happen during this time, supposedly they were going to stand up and exegete or explain scripture. What most of the rabbis did is that they just kind of stood up and talked and, and quoted other people and did not ever get into exactly what God wanted them to learn from the word of God. So notice verse 21 with that context in mind. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum and what's the next word? Immediately, here goes Jesus again. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. Here's the picture. Jesus goes into this town. He goes to the synagogue because that's where the people are. And he teaches. What you'll see is that he does this all the time. And immediately he goes in there. He's persecuted at Nazareth, which is in Galilee, and he has to, to, he, he has to leave. So he enters the synagogue, verse 21, and he taught. I like, if you're going to do a separate sermon on this little passage right here, titled The Day God Came to Church. A lot of times God ain't at, at that particular church. This is the day God came to church. So he taught. And the word taught in Greek means he imparted truth. He didn't just go through the ritual. He didn't go through the motions. He taught them. He imparted truth to them. You've heard me say it a million times, so let's do it one more time together. What does truth do for you? It sets you free. And Jesus said, that's why I came, to set the, the, those who are captive, to set them free. Not just physically captive, but captive to sin, captive to Satan, captive to the, the religion of the Pharisees, captive to anything that kept them from following the one true God. Jesus said, I came to set the captives at liberty. And he did it, obviously, and ultimately by dying on the cross. But in Mark, what you see is he did it by teaching truth. He taught them. And notice verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. I bet they were. They never heard anybody talk, teach them like this. Notice the way they put it, verse 22. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. How often did they hear the scribes? All the time. They were constantly reading the word of God, and then they supposedly were going to teach it, but they weren't hearing the authority behind it. But Jesus stands up, same scripture, it's read, and he teaches. The word, they were astonished. I love this word in Greek. It means they were struck as a blow, they were dumbfounded, they were knocked out of their senses. 
This was a shock to them to have somebody talk to them this way. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible Belt. I was in church every Sunday because my mom said, we're going to church. And our house was here, the church property butted up against our fence. You jumped our fence, you were on the church property. So we walked through the back gate and we went to church every Sunday. Now, maybe they preached the gospel, I don't know. Because I was a goofy kid. I was in the back with paper airplanes and spit wads and, and laughing at what was going on. I was a dumb kid. I don't know. But at age 16, I visited a different church. And the guy that was up there was talking about Jesus like he knew him. To me, he was a picture on the wall of a dude with long hair and a beard and hung out with sheep. You remember those little pictures? The shepherd with the lambs. I didn't know what that meant. Nobody ever told me. You know what we did in our classes? We had a book. I'm not saying the books were bad. We had a book. Randy would read paragraph one in the book, and then I would hand it to the person next to me. What would they do? They'd read paragraph two. And then the next person would read paragraph three. And then whoever was teaching the class would say, what do y'all think? And I'm thinking, how long before we get out of here? I want to go shoot spitwads in the auditorium and make airplanes. I didn't know what was going on. Nobody ever bothered to tell me. But man, I went to another church, and that guy was up there like, you can know today who God is personally. And I'm like, whoa, I never heard that before. You can have peace with God. You cannot be scared to die. You cannot be afraid of God. Whoa, whoa, I never heard any of that. See, he spoke with an authority I'd never heard. And it got my attention. It got my attention. And I never went back to the other church. I stayed at that one. And shortly thereafter, I was born again. And my life was changed forever because someone spoke with authority, the Word of God, into my life. And it changed me. So Jesus speaks to them and he teaches them and it's different. Not like what they're used to. All they knew were the pharisaical system of the scribes. They focused on tradition. Jesus focused on life and death principles. He explained God's word. He was clear. He illustrated it. He cared about the people. To the scribes and the Pharisees, the people were just somebody to use to manipulate, to control, to own, and to get money from. Now, if you don't think that's relevant, there are a lot of false teachers today doing the exact same thing. They don't care about the people. They don't care if their lives are changed. They just want to make sure that they're being taken care of. Jesus spoke with an authority they had never seen. That word authority there in verse 22 means with power that leads to obedience. They were mesmerized. Personal authority, it was intrinsic in the person of Jesus Christ. He was different. He was unique in what he had to say. I'm going to read you a quote by a psychiatrist named J.T. Fisher. If you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meal and none of the parts sleep, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and an incomplete summary 
of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its handle the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. See, Jesus was unique. What he offered was unique 2,000 years ago. What he offers today is unique. It will be unique tomorrow. It will be unique when I'm gone. It will be unique when you're gone. It will be unique when these precious girls are gone. Why? Because it's eternal. It's eternal. It's not just about turning over a new leaf and being a good person now and doing the best you can. It's about I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a reason for living, and I'm going to give you a message to share with your world that will change them forever, not temporarily, not do the best you can, not hope you're going to get there, but no, because of who Jesus Christ is. He's unique. Well, finally, verse 23, look at the power of his preaching. Verse 23. Now, there was a man in their synagogue during church with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What are we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out. And when the unclean spirit had had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice. He came out of him. They were all amazed. They questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Notice the scene again. They're at church. He's in the synagogue at Capernaum. Women in the synagogue, they're in the gallery. They don't come through the same door as the men. They sit separately. Jesus is teaching. They're all astonished, and he's interrupted. I love this picture. Sad as it is, please don't miss it. How often do you think that guy with the unclean spirit had been in that synagogue? A lot. More than likely. Nobody else had got his attention, had they? The demons weren't worried about anybody else, were they? Because they weren't preaching truth. They weren't declaring the word of God. They weren't preaching with the authority that Jesus Christ preaches with. That demands obedience. Jesus is interrupted. The devil's at church the day God came to church. And don't forget that. Don't forget that. Because if you're born again, all Satan wants to do is to keep your eyes off Jesus. He may not have you forever. If he can just keep you from being ineffective right now, he's done his job. Get your eyes off Jesus and get it on something else, something, about, something you want to get at odds with with someone, something you don't like, something about you. Get self-centered, focused. Your flesh wants to do that. Satan wants to do that. The world wants to do that. And Jesus keeps saying to you, it's not about you. It's not about you. Get outside yourself. Serve. So the devil's at church, the demon's at church, demons, it says let us alone in this man. Jesus is interrupted. The evil, the irony, that the holy time Jesus is speaking, broken, interrupted, 
by the most unholy of presence, that of a demon. And notice what happens. Satan had no problem with the synagogue. Satan has no problem with religion and ritual. What he had a problem with, Jesus comes in there with authority and starts talking about something that would change their lives. When Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, you know, remember what he said to them in Matthew 23? You are going to hell, and you're taking people with you. They were as religious as you could be, as traditional as you could be, had as much ritual as you could possibly have. And Jesus said to the people, do not be like them, do not give like them, do not pray like them, do not worship like they do. You worship the God in, God in spirit and truth. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't be like the Pharisees. And they were as religious as you could be. Satan loves that because it keeps you focused on your good deeds and your works and you're trying to do the best you can as opposed to focused on the person of Jesus Christ and being different and sharing the gospel, being, preaching that unique message. He loves that. The man with the demon. Why did he interrupt Jesus? Well, we've talked about that. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, said these following words to the church at Smyrna. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. He loves religion. As long as you don't focus on Jesus, it's all good. We have to understand our message is unique. So notice the reaction of the demon to Jesus, verse 23. He cries out. The Greek phrase cried out means a death roar. The agony of a death roar. Verse 24, he says, let us alone, cries it out, screams the fear. Notice again verse 24, really important. Verse 24, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They recognized and confessed who Jesus was. They realized he had the power to, quote, destroy us. They weren't afraid of the scribes and the Pharisees, but they were afraid of Jesus because he was God. They knew he had the power to destroy them. I know who you are. And notice the phrase, you are the Holy One of God. Flip over for just a moment to chapter 3, verse 11. 3.11. I want you to notice this is not an isolated case. 3.11. The unclean spirits, just like we see in Mark 1. The unclean spirits, whenever they saw Jesus, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. These are demons crying this out. Chapter 5, verse 7. 5.7. 5, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What am I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. 
another demon-possessed man. Now you can go back to chapter 1. Here's the point. When Jesus shows up, the unseen demons are revealed for what they are. and They know that they're dealing with God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible to be encouraged and remember is this. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who's within me than he who's within the world. Satan is incredibly powerful, but the Holy Spirit that indwells you is omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan was created by him. The demons were created by him. They were cast out of heaven by him, and they will be cast forever into the lake of fire by an angel that he sends. He is omnipotent, sovereign God over them. They bow before him. The thing I really want you to notice about 20, verse 24, they knew exactly who Jesus was. Look at it one more time. What are they calling him in verse 24, chapter 1? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They recognized Jesus' power, his authority, his deity. They knew they were in the presence of God. A.W. Tozer, that great theologian, in some incredible books, said this, The devil is a better theologian than any of us and he's still a devil. That's how wicked he is. He knows who God is, and he knows who he's dealing with. Now notice verse 25, Jesus' response. The demon is speaking truth. He's the Holy One of God. James puts it this way. Even the demons believe. They know, and they tremble. So Jesus rebukes the demon. He did not want his testimony there about who he was. He rebukes him. He muzzles him, tells him to be quiet, and he casts the demon out. He rebukes him, he muzzles him, and he casts him out, or them out. Now, verse 26, the demon's response. He convulses, cries out, and comes out. He didn't have any choice but to obey Jesus, did he? He didn't fight with Jesus. What did he do? He did what God told him to do. Because he is God. And he is sovereign over Satan and his minions. When Jesus told him to come out, he came out. No choice. He wasn't going to fight. Look at verse 34 for just a moment. Verse 34. We'll get more into this next week. Before the day is over, verse 34, Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. It wasn't some magic formula. He didn't have to have some incantation. He didn't have to sling water or smoke. What did Jesus do? He said, you shut up, and you come out. And what did the demon do? Convulsed, cried out, and he came out because God told him to. He didn't have any authority over God. He wasn't equal with God. He wasn't going to fight with God. He came out because God said, come out. Now notice the response, and then we're going to be done. Verse 27. They were all amazed. They questioned themselves, saying, what is this? What is he teaching? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. The word amazed in verse 27 means they had wonder and great admiration. They were, the, the Greek is they were riveted, panicked almost to the point of being motionless. They just couldn't believe what they were seeing. They were riveted on the person of Jesus Christ. And so they start saying, what is this? What's he teaching? This is unique. We don't see this. And notice verse 28. Immediately, they spread the news all over Galilee. They didn't even have Facebook. But it got out, didn't it? It got out. They didn't have the web. They couldn't text. But it got out. This guy is different. He doesn't teach like anybody we've ever heard. He changes lives. He casts out demons. You got to hear this guy. You got to see him. They asked John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, why so many people were coming to hear him when he, had, when he spoke. John Wesley said this. He said, I just get myself on fire and the people come watch me burn. Charles Spurgeon, Bert Spurgeon, great preacher, said this. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and not let one go there unwarned and unprayed for. See, Jesus Christ was unique different the only one who could do what he could do but that's who we share we'll read you two last quotes and we're going to be done today I really want you to focus on how unique Jesus was Napoleon Bonaparte everybody knows said the following you speak of Caesar of Alexander their conquest and the enthusiasm which enkindled in their hearts of their soldiers but can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful and entirely devoted to his memory? My armies have forgotten me even while I'm living. As the Carthaginian army forgot Hannibal, such is our power. I search in vain history to find similar to Jesus Christ. Anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it here. In the gospel, everything is extraordinary. I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions would die for him. And then finally, H.G. Wells, British writer, obviously famous novelist, when asked which person left the most important permanent impression on history, he replied that judging a person's greatness by historical standards, quote, by this test, Jesus stands first. I am a historian. I am not a believer. This is his quote. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. 
Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Christ is the most unique person of history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. That's who your Savior is. He is unique. And when we preach the gospel, that's what we're doing. We're sharing the unique tale of the God-man, the servant Savior. And by the way, it's a privilege not a duty, it's an honor to tell people about your Jesus. You bow your heads, please. Father, we just want to pause before you briefly as our God, our Father. Lord, we thank you for the, the unique fact that Jesus Christ came, that without him we have no hope. But in him we have all hope. That his preaching was unique. His power was unique. His authority was unique. And I pray, Lord, we would be reminded every day of who our Savior is. The one that we share. The one that some charlatans abuse the name of. Use it for their own personal gain. Lord, I thank you for a church that stands for truth and give us the opportunity to share it. Use us starting with me and all our leaders and everyone who calls Christ Church home, that we would understand that the gospel is unique, that we would teach it, we would live it, we would share it, as do all our people. We thank you, Father, for the privilege, the opportunity of sharing the unique gospel. Pray we would be motivated as Christians as we leave here today to understand and do that. And Lord, if there's somebody here who's not a believer, this will be their moment to look at Jesus. H.G. Wells says, I'm not a believer. Lord, anybody who's here today would look at Jesus and say, he is unique. He's the only one that can save me. And ask for Jesus' forgiveness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.